Hey, science nerds, welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcast, where we explore the research in various science disciplines at McMaster to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. I'll be your host, Bonnie, and I'm joined with my co-host, Denny. Welcome to MRSA Podcasts. Today, we're joined with Dr. Sarah Styler, an assistant professor at the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology at McMaster University. To give you all a fast rundown, Dr. Styler earned her Bachelor of Science, Master's of Science, and PhD in Environmental Chemistry from the University of Toronto before establishing the Styler Research Group at the University of Alberta, where she was an assistant professor of environmental chemistry. She moved the Styler Group to McMaster in 2020 and has been focusing on integrating atmospheric chemistry to historic conservation ever since. Uh, additionally, a uh, big congratulations to uh, you, Dr. Styler, since you just received the Canada Research Chair in Atmospheric Chemistry for Applying Atmospheric Chemistry Strategies to Advanced Cultural Heritage Conservation just a few weeks before this interview. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so good afternoon, Dr. Styler. How are you doing today? Um, I'm, I'm good, thanks. And I'm also happy to, to be here. This is my first uh, podcast participation, so um, I'm happy to be involved. Well, we're lucky to have you here. Start off, we're going to ask a few background questions. So Dr. Styler, would you want to tell our audience about your academic path from the University of Toronto to the University of Alberta and eventually to McMaster University? Oh, sure. Yeah. So um, I started um, my undergraduate at the University of Toronto in uh, 1999. Um, and at that time, I was just kind of enrolled in a general program, uh, general sciences program. Um, I switched to uh, chemistry specifically because I actually accidentally enrolled in the advanced um, first year chemistry class um, because I thought I had to take it. It turns out I didn't. Um, but the course was really good. So I realized I wanted to stay in chemistry. Um, in my second year, I, I was deciding between environmental chemistry and evolutionary biology, which are quite disparate fields. And it was a little bit of a, um, a coin toss as to which one I would go into. Um, I ended up actually choosing environmental chemistry, <clears throat> excuse me, because I was vegan at the time. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is how the overall trajectory of my life was determined, I suppose, at age, you know, 17 or something. Um, anyway, so then I ended up doing uh, my undergrad in environmental chemistry at Toronto. Um, I worked in a research lab looking at uh, some cloud climate interactions in my second year. And in my fourth year, I worked and did a fourth year research project on um, essentially uh, organic synthesis, uh, looking at palladium catalyzed reactions. So I, I was essentially using my electives to take a bunch of organic chemistry classes because I thought I might um, want to go into organic chemistry. Um, anyway, so then I graduated and um, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Uh, I worked in uh, university fundraising for a year and a half or two years or something and uh, was seconded to the United Way of Greater Toronto. Um, I was able to build some, um, um, you know, public uh, communication skills and things that I didn't quite have after an undergrad spent primarily in front of a, a fume hood. Um, and then after that, I came back, I wanted to do a master's in chemistry, uh, specifically because I wanted to um, work in public policy. And so I, I enrolled in uh, the environmental chemistry program because I was interested in um, chemical regulation and, and, and pollutant regulation and things like that. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so 
midway through that, I ended up actually switching my research topic entirely uh, to start looking at um, an entirely different type of, of chemistry in, in the environment. I ended up focusing mainly in my master's on reactions happening on windows uh, in cities and how that could influence uh, air quality in cities. Um, and then at that point, I decided um, that I wanted to go into art conservation. Um, I'm not really, and, and I decided this because I saw a poster on a wall in the chemistry uh, hallway. Um, and so I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. And, and so I started taking some art classes and some, I took Italian and I took, yeah, some art history and some practical art things. And then I realized that, um, and I started researching programs. And then I realized, you know, in order to be an art conservator, you have to you know, be able to actually do things art related um, as opposed to just kind of theoretically talking about them. And my, my skills in that area are fine, I suppose, but not, you know, stellar. And um, so at that point I realized maybe I should go into conservation science. Um, so I did this, I went to London, UK and worked at the, the Tate Gallery there for a year, um, looking at air quality in, in, um, in museums um, and doing a bunch of measurements in different museum environments. Um, looking to see how the way that we store paintings and store um, artwork can influence uh, their longevity and things that can happen to degrade them. Um, and so, you know, that was amazing because I, you know, I spent a lot of time in the storage facilities at, at Tate and actually these huge museums, they only have, I don't know, it's something like 3% of their works are on display and everything else is in storage. So I was pulling out these huge racks, um, you know, that hold their hold their paintings and, and just seeing, you know, all of the kind of um, famous artists of, you know, the um, 19th, 20th centuries just kind of staring back at me, hanging on these, um, on these um, holders, essentially. It was really something. Um, anyway, so then at that point, I decided, well, actually, I think I'll do a PhD in chemistry. Um, so I came back to Canada and then um, the thought process behind all this is not particularly clear. I've always just kind of done whatever seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, so I came back and, and in my um, PhD, I was focusing on chemistry at the surface of dust. Um, so I did um, work looking at how um, dust can essentially act as a, as a photocatalyst, so speeding up reactions because it has minerals in them that absorb light uh, and can promote chemical reactions. So for that, I, I worked in the lab. Um, I went to France and did an exchange there where I worked in a big um, atmospheric chemistry um, uh, simulation chamber um, that you know tries to simulate things that are happening in the atmosphere, but inside a big stainless steel container. Um, and then I graduated in 2014, I think. I moved to Germany and um, did some work on, again, back on chemistry on window films for my, for my postdoc. Uh, then I went to Alberta, uh, was there for five years, and now I'm here in, um, in uh, Hamilton at McMaster. So that's, that's the story. It's a little bit kind of twisted and winding path, but I feel as though it's fairly typical for how people end up where they are ultimately. It's incredible. I love how... I don't know. I love how uh, you were very open-minded to new experiences and then you got to kind of travel around and learn a bunch of new skills and do a bunch of things in different fields that kind of have something to do with each other, but also branch off a little bit. That's, that's the uh, there, goal. There <laughs> well, thank you. Um, there definitely was, I mean, I, I'd say it's more of a sort of an impulsive nature. I think about things and think, oh, this would be a great idea. And I, I'm really not the best at thinking about you know, what is my plan for, you know, 20 years from now, I'm more just thinking, what should I do next? And actually, as it turns out, um, I, I, I could disclose as well that I've actually, during the pandemic, during these challenging times, I was, I've actually been diagnosed with, with ADHD. And I actually think that a lot of that has to, you know, influences my sort of um, impulsive nature and, and interest in kind of thinking about things 
um, career-wise, creatively, more creatively than I would have otherwise. It has a lot of um, detriments as well. And I do consider it a, a disability that I experience, but it does have its benefits too. So yeah, for sure. So just to segue into uh, kind of like, what are the research fields that are explored by the Styler Group at McMaster specifically? Sure, sure. Uh, so we are doing a lot of different things at the moment. Um, I'll just reference back to my sort of broad interests in, in stuff. Um, and uh, at the moment, we're thinking, I guess I could organize things under this idea of chemistry at atmospheric interfaces in the most broadly possible defined way. Um, so when we think about atmospheric interfaces, we think about some sort of surface that can interact with the gas phase that surrounds it, so the air, and uh, can interact with it with the surface itself. So this can be particles in the atmosphere, it can be surfaces like buildings that are exposed to the atmosphere, um, or surfaces like cultural heritage objects that are exposed to atmospheres um, that are quite different from those outside because they're stored away in boxes. Um, you can imagine when you open up um, you know, old books and you smell that kind of musty smell, that, that, that atmosphere is obviously quite different than the atmosphere we have outside. Um, and so in terms, so that's sort of the, the broad organizing principle that I, I think is tenuously holding the threads of my group's research together. Um, because if we kind of think about what the surfaces are that we're looking at, they're all very, very different. So there's students in my group who are looking at chemistry and um, the climate impacts of wildfires. So the particles that are emitted from, from wildfires and in particular from, um, from boreal wildfires, um, which are becoming a larger and larger problem as our, as our climate change changes to try and think about what are the, the properties of these particles, how do they absorb light, how do they interact with radiation, um, and also um, what kind of chemicals are present in these particles and how do they react and how does their toxicity change. So that's kind of one field of, of research. Um, we're also doing a lot of work on chemistry on dust, um, so road dust, urban dusts, um, um, materials that are coming out of cars um, that aren't the um, exhaust part of emissions from cars, so they are appropriately named non-exhaust emissions. Uh, so these are things like tire particles, brake particles, um, and how reactions happen on those different surfaces, how they change the composition of the gas phase that surrounds them, how they change the composition of um, pollutants that are on the surfaces. Um, and so there's a lot of dust related stuff. Um, we, we actually have funding or will have funding to um, be looking at the elemental composition actually of road dust in Hamilton. Um, and the goal of, of that work, um, once it gets going is to get a sense of, you know, what are the um, fine spatial variability of uh, dust composition in Hamilton? How is it linked to industrial activities and how does that uh, link into kind of environmental justice related concepts of, um, you know, how different people and different groups of people in Hamilton are exposed to different pollutants as a result of where they live. Um, I also, as, as has been alluded to, have this uh, kind of wing of the program that's looking at um, cultural heritage conservation, um, looking at um, how materials are degraded over time, how we can um, ameliorate that, how we can assess the extent to which that's happening. Um, and then finally, I guess um, another student in my group is thinking about pesticides on surfaces. Um, so he's coming at it from um, the context of um, where he's from in Zimbabwe, where there's a lot of indoor pesticide use. And so we're interested in thinking about some of the uh, health impacts of, of that as well. And I feel like I'm probably forgetting something, but I think that kind of generally covers it. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different surfaces and we're always kind of poking around and doing new things. So um, you've said before how your research focuses on exploring like photo oxidative reactions um, occurring 
with like the mixture of chemicals that code either urban environments or just the dust in, in our atmosphere. What are some of the difficulties you have faced extra, extrapolating the complexity of urban film photochemistry from model systems to the real world? Oh, <laughs> that's a great question. Yeah, I think a lot of the work that we do um, relates to this idea of how do we take something outside that's so complex and um, study it in the lab in a way that, um, in a way that, uh, I don't know how to describe it, um, is um, easy to understand, I suppose. So how do we simplify things so that they're easy to understand, but not simplify them so much that the conclusions we get are no longer relevant to the real world. And so this is a real challenge for anyone who works with, you know, outside of the lab systems. Obviously, this is, you know, hugely important in the context of um, you know, the non-chemical research as well, right? So it's it's just an aspect of environmental chemistry that's quite challenging is that the environment is like, frankly, a total mess. And, um, you know, if we want to study things in isolation, we can get very weird results that may not be actually very useful. So, you know, I'll just give a specific example. Um, one of them is that um, one of the students in my group who graduated with her PhD very recently, um, Maya Abuganam, uh, she's now doing a postdoctoral research um, at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration which is really exciting. Um, so she was interested in saying, we're looking at dust chemistry in the atmosphere. Um, and what people have done in the past is they've said uh, dust chemistry in the atmosphere is mediated by um, titanium containing minerals. So um, the main sort of common one that people think about is the one that people use as catalysts, um, photocatalysts in like pollutant remediation and things, which is titanium dioxide, TiO2. Um, and so that's an obvious photocatalyst. It's used in a ton of different industrial applications. Um, and titanium is also present in dust. And so researchers thought, okay, so titanium is in dust. Um, titanium dioxide is photoreactive. Therefore, what we can do is we can model the kind of reactions that happen in the atmosphere using titanium dioxide plus a pollutant and then scaling it to how much titanium dioxide is in the dust and so on and so forth. So, you know, if there's 1% in the dust, we can make these mixtures in the lab that have 1% in the lab. Um, but what, what, what we actually found is that the kind of titanium that you use in the lab um, has very different reactivities than the kind of titanium that's actually in dust. Um, because they have different crystal structures, they have different um, um, sort of just photochemical properties. And so what happens is if you use this stuff that you can buy from like the lab science store, titanium dioxide, its reactivity is usually different than that of titanium dioxide in the real environment. And then the other thing that's even more complicated is that there's lots of environmental substrates that have a lot of titanium elementally, but it's not actually titanium dioxide it's titanium in other kind of forms that are not photocatalytics, they don't promote reaction. So essentially what happens is um, it's really difficult to predict the kind of chemistry that can happen in the real world um, using these really simple model systems. So I guess if I were to sort of hammer home the point of a lot of our research is that, you know, you can do experiments and you can get an answer. You always get an answer, but what does that answer mean? Um, and trying to interrogate some of that is, is really one of the major focuses of our group, actually. Um, how does this answer actually reflect the, you know, the, the properties or the behavior in the real world? That's really interesting. I, uh, yeah, I've, I've thought about because you read studies and they're very specific and they have like what seems to be the answer, but then it's, it's like, how do you apply this specific answer to this one issue to everything? Um, and uh, kind of segueing back to that, you talked a little bit about 
um, pollutants. Uh, like your your lab is doing a little bit of research on pollutants in Hamilton. Uh, could you kind of go into a little bit more detail on the type of pollutants that you're focusing on and also how they're kind of related to issues in human health and the environment? Yes, um, for sure. I can definitely do that. Um, so I would say when you when you think about um, um, environmental chemistry and, and and chemical research in the environment, I suppose in general, there's you know sort of different streams of that. So there's streams where people are um, you know going out in the environment and measuring concentrations of different things that are relevant in a human health context. So these are you know a lot of the things you hear about in the news, like PFAS, these um, uh, polyfluorinated substances. I forget exactly what the new acronym is or things that, you know, are endocrine disruptors or, or various specific chemicals. And so often there's a lot of researchers who, you know, are developing new analytical tools to determine what are the concentrations of these in different areas and, and you know, what are the exposure pathways, et cetera, et cetera. So this is not so much what our group does, though. Um, what we do is um, we're interested in thinking about how reactions in these different environments can influence the concentration of those different species um, that people might be interested in from a public health perspective. Um, and um, how we can model like the, the, the persistence and the fate of those chemicals as a function of, of time. So I'll give an example. Um, so Iris um, uh, Chan in my group, she's a, a PhD student. She's looking at um, the behavior of a group of compounds known as um, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. So these are PHs. Um, <clears throat> that's um, a bunch of different benzene rings fused together. Um, and they're, they're toxic uh, and in some cases carcinogenic. So they're cancer causing. Um, in some cases, they're also genotoxic. So they can have sort of longer term health effects. Um, and so what she's interested in doing is, is saying um, these um, PHs are present present in the ash um, from the Fort McMurray wildfires, actually, that was the genesis of her project. Um, a lot of my earlier group's work was, you know, really informed by the place we were located because, you know, whereas I think if you're in sort of organic chemistry or, you know, some of the more fundamental types of chemistry, it kind of doesn't really matter where your lab is, right? But when you're doing environmental chemistry, then you, you always kind of get people saying, well, you know, what are you doing about the wildfires, you know, or, do, you know, depending on where you're living, right? Um, and, and, you know, and it becomes, you know, obvious when you have hugely poor wildfire air quality days and things like this. Um, anyway, so Iris is exposing these um, ash samples. We already know the concentration of these pHs in them. That's, that's someone else's research question. What's the concentration? And she's actually taking them and exposing them to ozone, which is a, a common environmental pollutant. Um, it's present in the gas phase. It's very reactive. And saying, you know, if we expose this ash that we know has this toxic stuff in it, um, what happens to that as a function of time? Does the toxic stuff go away, the pHs, or do, or do they stick around? How reactive are they? How long will these kind of um, ash health impacts stick around for ecosystems or for people who are in sort of contact with this type of material? Um, and so she's kind of looking at the persistence of these chemicals. And so often we're saying, okay, we have these different environmental matrices, whether they're ash, whether they're dust whether they're, you know, water and clouds or whatever. And can we model the chemistry that happens inside those to get a sense of what happens to the pollutants that other people care about and measure? I think that's my answer. <laughs> Beautiful answer. Um, speaking on that a little bit more, um, I guess, on a microscopic level, a little bit more. Sure. You did a research in Iceland um, looking at volcanic particular matter. Um, what are some of the potential indirect air quality effects of gas-based contaminants interacting with volcanic PM? 
Sure, sure. So this this is related to a, um, a research project that came about um, through a collaboration that I have with um, Dr. Manolis Romanius, who's a, a, a professor at um, IMT Lille Douai, which is uh, in France, um, near Lille, as the name suggests. Um, and so I, I became in contact with him through a conference that I attended, one of the very first large conferences that I, or international large conferences that I went to as a as a relatively new professor. Um, it was called Dust 2016. The name kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I went to this conference and um, I was presenting my group's research for the first time um, in kind of a big deal sort of way. Um, and it was actually work that was being done by undergrads in the group because I just had um, undergraduate researchers working with me at the time, really two really excellent um, undergraduate researchers, Stephanie and Chelsea. And um, so I gave this talk and midway through my, like the PowerPoint got all messed up and I only had half of the time I was supposed to have. And then my slides kept auto advancing and it was like an abject disaster. And I'm standing there thinking like, God, like I flew all the way to, you know, to Italy to give this talk. And I just looked like such a giant idiot anyway. So inexplicably, he then emailed me and was like, do you want to collaborate? I was like, oh, that's odd. Um, but anyway, so we did. So I don't know how this occurred. I have no idea, but anyway, um, so we set up this collaboration and, and I started working with him to look at chemistry of different photoactive. So light active species in the atmosphere. And um, what we chose to start to look at was, was volcanic ash. So this gets back to your actual question. Um, so we were interested in thinking about what happens to this ash um, when you shine light on it. Um, it has a lot of titanium in it. Um, as I mentioned before, this could be quite reactive. And we were interested in thinking if this ash is in the atmosphere, um, how does it react? How does it sort of influence the composition of the atmosphere surrounding the ash? And how does this sort of become important in areas where you have a lot of volcanic sediment or volcanic material that contributes to air quality reductions in those areas. So, you know, you have ash coming out of a volcano um, and that has sort of a time limited impact. Um, and then also you have areas that have a lot of volcanic activity and then their, their soils are composed of, the, they're volcanically sourced essentially. So that material is getting, um, you know, resuspended by the wind sent into urban areas. Anyway, so getting to the point is that, you know, we built this, um, this um, reactor that allowed us to look at the interaction of the gas phase stuff with the, with the volcanic material. Um, and we hypothesized that the volcanic material would be really reactive because it had um, five or 6% titanium. And uh, then we found that it didn't really do very much. It wasn't very reactive with ozone. Um, we thought it would be this great photocatalyst and remove a lot of ozone. Um, it didn't. And this actually led to all of my interest, my group's interest in these titanium related questions. So we collaborated with Britta Jensen, who is a, a researcher at the University of Alberta. Um, and we looked at stuff under a variety of different microscope types. And we found out that actually all the titanium in this material is, um, is present in in the glass, the volcanic glass. So when volcanic um, ash is emitted, it has a mineral component. So where the atoms are all like kind of um, organized in a, um, an organized fashion. And then it has this glassy component, which is amorphous. So it's kind of like a blob of, of, of material without this structure. Anyway, a lot of the TI was stuck in the glass. Uh, it didn't interact with the ozone at all. It didn't really do anything. So it wasn't very reactive. Um, but anyway, the main point, I guess, of all of this was that if the concentrations of this ash stuff that are getting remobilized from volcanic areas and, and dust um, is high, then there could be a perturbation of ozone concentrations under some conditions. But it actually turns out that the, the reactivity of it is a lot less than we thought. Um, it might be possible, though, that because the ash is emitted with other types of chemicals coating it, there's a lot of like acids, HCl, other things like this. 
um, HF. It's it's a big mess when it comes out of the volcano. And so it's possible that the interaction with ozone in like this, the stratosphere when the ash is sent up there could be important for a variety of other reasons, but that wasn't really what we were looking at. Anyway, I guess my main point is the results were less exciting, quote unquote, you know, where exciting is like large magnitude of effect. Um, but I think that they were exciting in the sense that um, we really, it kind of highlights the extent to which we really need to think about particles um, in a very sort of detailed way. Like, you know, it's not enough to just know their composition. You have to know how are these elements distributed in a particle and how does that influence their chemistry? <clears throat> Do you think that uh, kind of when you get a less interesting result, it kind of just opens up more fields of research in that area? Um, so like more yeah. fields of research in particulate matter, more fields of research in, <laughs> in uh, like urban film and more fields hmm. and stuff like that when you get a less interesting kind of result like that. Yeah, I mean, I have feelings about less interesting results because I feel as though we're, you know, sort of collectively, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, mm, not motivated, um, externally motivated, I suppose by, you know, the way that granting agencies are structured and the way that, you know, the world is structured, I suppose, to, you know, be producing these new exciting things, these new exciting results, you know, and I think um, uh, the environmental and atmospheric chemistry community is often, you know, sort of influenced by these types of um, ways of thinking about things, um, you know, because let's say you have some observation, um, you know, the observation is that we have lower than predicted concentrations of X. It doesn't really matter what X is, you know, and you want to find the reason. And, you know, then there's a lot of studies that say, well, the reason could be this and the reason could be that and the reason could be this, you know, and I think there's this, people are tempted to say, okay, well, I found this sort of, um, I was going to say magic bullet, but I realized that's the blender. So I think it might be like a silver bullet maybe, or something that explains everything, you know, whatever, I don't know what the concept is, but I'm thinking about the smoothies that I make on a semi-regular basis instead. Um, anyway, so, you know, to try and figure out something that will explain everything, but the point is that the environment, the atmosphere is super complicated. And so, you know, it's less um, glamorous to say that, okay, well, maybe the reason for this, this behavior is that, you know, there's a hundred different factors, each of which has like a 5% impact you know, and, and it's really hard to sell that kind of stuff to some sort of funding agency or to a journal, um, which is really unfortunate, yeah. you know, because um, these negative results um, or results that are less exciting than we expect, as you said, are often kind of, you know, kind of interesting, I think, um, you know, to bring it back to one of the things that we're doing, like Iris and my group, we were, we, when we were talking about this ash chemistry, we were saying, okay, we're going to expose the ozone to the ash for, um, you know, different amounts of time and say, how long does it take for this, this material to go away? And how, how does it change the toxicity, blah, 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 blah. Um, she did the experiments and she actually found out when she did um, this ozone exposure that the concentration that she measured actually increased by like a factor of five, which is weird because, you know, um, we're not creating new matter here, right? It was kind of, you know, I mean, the most that we should have is the amount that we started with. Um, it actually turns out that when you expose this ash to ozone, um, and extract things, you're actually changing the extractability of, of the pollutant that you're interested in. So, you know, you expose this ash that has these pHs to ozone, and then, um, then the pHs come off the ash more easily. So it looks like there's more of them. So that was weird um, and non, not expected. And, and we think that this might actually be changing the accessibility of these um, pollutants, like in a biological, like in a um, environmental context, what's the bioavailability of them to things to, you know, um, 
um, living things that are interacting with it. So it was kind of like a non-result in that we didn't get what we expected, I suppose, but maybe it's more interesting in the end. So I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with negative results. I think. Or more um, useful, I, yeah. like that, yeah. that's useful knowing that after <laughs> completing those studies, but also I feel like even when you get into um, a science degree as an undergraduate student, a lot of the times you're excited in like the flashier media, super yeah. big science, when in reality, if you enter a field of research, most of the time you're doing research that isn't as flashy or exciting, but is super <laughs> useful in the flashy, exciting research later. I don't know. Yeah, I think also just on the topic of this kind of usefulness or flashy or exciting, I mean, I feel like I've kind of, maybe it's because I spend some time thinking about art and things um, a fair bit. And I, I mean, I think there's a real um, overlap, you know, between creativity as, as artists, creativity as scientists. And, you know, I think, um, uh, you know, like, I don't think something has to have a use in order to be worth doing. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to understand how things work, um, you know, in a sort of general sense and a creative sense. Um, so, you know, it's, it's frustrating sometimes when we have to kind of sell things as, you know, I mean, maybe we just want to know it because we want to know it, you know, and in that way, I guess, I think it's useful to think about science as this creative discipline where we're just kind of playing around a bit and trying to find out you know, what happens. On the topic of negative results, though, I mean, it would be very helpful if people published their negative results, right? I mean, the whole point of, um, of research is that it's supposed to show a record of what's true and what's real, right? And if we are only publishing, you know, half of or less of everything, um, you know, then it it really skews our, our understanding of how things work. So for example, you know, if we're, if I'm going out to say my hypothesis is that this reaction is important for this reason, and then it turns out it's not, and I don't publish it, um, because a journal won't accept it because it's not interesting, you know, then what's going to happen is, you know, some other poor PhD student is going to come along five years later, one year later and do the exact same experiments. And so, I mean, why? <laughs> so, you know, it'd be very helpful if we, um, you know, had places to, um, you know, convey these results that are negative because the negative results are still a result. Um, it's just, you know, maybe not what we expected, but that's not how we're supposed to think as scientists anyway. So to change things up a bit, um... I wanted to ask you a question regarding like how you brought the two um, concepts, oh, two fields of art conversation, art conservation and atmospheric chemistry together. Um, when did you initially recognize that bringing these two communities together may be a good idea? And how did you go about bringing them together? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so I... <laughs> I remember writing in some application at some point um, when I was applying for this internship at the Tate, actually, um, after my master's, you know, atmospheric chemists and cultural heritage conservation scientists care about the same types of things. They care about the interaction of surfaces um, or materials with pollutants, or they care about the interaction with light and, and the types of reactions that can happen. Um, and in a general sense, I suppose. And so I guess that's the commonality that attracted me to um, to the conservation science end of things, you know, and then I went um, to work there and I realized, you know, I'm, I'm doing air quality measurements, which is kind of the same thing. We were measuring air quality in a different type of environment. We were measuring inside, you know, storage cases, inside frames of, you know, looking at acidic emissions from plywood and how that affects things when um, paintings are stored for transit and things like this. Um, anyway, and then um, the atmospheric chemistry community over the past while has really moved its research interests um, indoors a lot, which has become 
you know, not to like um, beat the dead horse here, but, you know, has become kind of more important the more time we spend indoors in the context of, um, you know, our ongoing living nightmare here with COVID. Um, but, um, you know, there's been a lot of interest in indoor air quality. And, and the thing that I think is missing, though, is um, we have all these atmospheric chemists who have all of this really great instrumentation to measure air quality, like really complex stuff, you know, and then we have um, all of these uh, conservation scientists and conservators who have really um, nuanced and important understandings of how um, of how materials behave and and a really context dependent notion of how they behave and 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 why we care about it and you know and and what's feasible and what's not feasible in terms of conservation efforts um, you know given budgets and given like um, you know levels of um, scientific knowledge with conservators and things like this you know and, and and I think often those two fields can kind of butt up against each other um, in a way that I think is kind of not helpful for example. Um, you know, there was this actually this meeting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York looking at um, how conservators and um, um, atmospheric chemists can come together. And I got this invite, um, which kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, God, how, did these people know that I did this internship? But it turned out it was just because of my surface film research. And I got there and I was so excited. But anyway, the point is that these atmospheric chemists um, were like, oh, well, you know, we can do all these, these measurements with all of this detail about um, air quality in these different environments. And you know, and, and we should do this and we should do that. And then one of these uh, conservators put up, put up her hand and said, you know, just to make it clear to you, you know, my institution is, you know, a um, hundred or I can't remember the details, historic houses across some state or some area of the United States um, or England, I can't remember anymore. The story is, is perhaps not as detailed as I, as I would like it to be. But the point is, she's like, you know, I've got a ton of different houses um, and most of them don't have any climate control systems. Um, you know, and like A, B, and C challenges. So, so no, we can't do this thing you're suggesting. This is ridiculous. We're conserving or attempting to conserve, you know, thousands of objects in hundreds of houses that are in differing states of disrepair, you know, and we have X budget to do this, right? And so um, anyway, my main thing is that I think if these areas are going to interact um, in a productive way, what atmospheric chemists need to do is they need to you know, really acknowledge that there's these areas of expertise in fields that are like, you know, related, but not the same as their own. And that, you know, if you're going to have collaborations with people in that area, you have to have like actually sort of meaningful collaborations. You have to ask conservators, you know, who are tasked with maintaining and preserving this cultural heritage, what do you want and what do you need? As opposed to saying, you know, I have this big fancy instrument and I'm going to I don't know, like tell you what to do with it or something. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think there's all these overlaps. And so one of the things that my group is trying to do is to, um, we're collaborating with Bronwyn Ormsby, who's a conservation scientist at Tate, who I actually worked with after my master's as well, when I was there in my internship, you know, to say, okay, you know, this is what might be useful for people to understand. So for example, we're looking at soiling of paintings from particles that are emitted, um, you know, from combustion processes. So city stuff that gets into air quality systems. And you know, one of the things they want to know is how they're imbibed, how they're taken up into the surface. So how can I help with this? Well, what we can do is we can generate particles in a reproducible way. We can send them at model systems. We can do stuff, but in a way that's like actually answering a question that she cares about versus some random question that I make up that has no connection to anything. So anyway, that's a long answer, but I think it's just useful when people are doing collaborative work to kind of figure out like, you know, what do these other fields that have their own sets of histories, their own sets of questions, their own sets of, you know, knowledge that should be respected, you know, what, what did they want? Um, and to think of fields as equals in that way. 
Yeah, speaking of uh, how it's kind of um, how other fields are affected by certain research and certain work, how was the research that you did on like damage to cultural her heritage sites first received by the science community? Like what was um, the Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, we haven't actually published on any of this stuff yet. It's just been sort of germinating in my mind for, um, you know, since I was um, doing my um, my internship, I suppose, what, what I, what has happened actually is that, you know, I, I, I started my research group at Alberta. Um, I had all these plans of things I was going to do. And then we, you know, I was walking down a street and I, I, um, I was like, it's dusty here because I'm from Ontario. And I was like, this is odd. I'll pick up this dust and take it to the lab with like a scoop off the street. And I will give it to this student to like, look at its reactivity because I was running out of other ideas. So then now that's how our dust up started. So anyway, then, you know, then my group started doing more and more dust things. And then at that point, um, I remember I was lying in bed one night and I was like chatting with my husband about, um, you know, oh, you know, that time that I was in the UK and it, and it was weird that I, you know, never followed up on that. And then I had this like brainwave. I was like, I am a professor, I can do whatever I want, you know, and I mean, you know, within reason. So then I basically was like, I'm just going to start doing this stuff again. So then I was talking to this really great undergrad, um, Katika, who um, I was mentoring through this, um, anyway, this mentorship program through one of the women in science programs at Alberta. And uh, I was like, do you want to work in my lab and do this thing with paint that I thought about 10 years ago and then forgot about? And she was like, yes, inexplicably. So, you know, we, I forget what question I'm even answering here, but um, uh, what is it? Yes, right. Okay. So um, in terms of how people will receive things, I think it's going to be a bit weird to find journals to publish things in. Um, the, the, you know, the publishing, the way that publishing is done in, in the conservation science area is a bit different. There's a lot of like gray literature, which is stuff that's presented at um, conferences or proceedings or, or even just material that's conveyed through um, like internet mailing lists and stuff, because it's a very practical community, you know? And so I think the important thing um, that I want to do as we start to get results um, is to make sure to convey the work that we're doing um, to the audience that is appropriate for it. Um, and so for some of this work, the audience will be kind of conservation journals. Um, the other option is to present in or is to publish in material science type journals where we're talking about, you know, material behavior and things. Um, and then also to um, make sure that when we do this, that we're sending the information to our contacts in different galleries and museum environments to kind of disseminate um, that information. But I'll tell you, actually, I have a specific example, which is that I'm finally getting around to publishing some work. Oh, this is another thing that maybe students might find amusing is that, you know, sometimes it can take one billion years for things to actually turn into papers. Um, so, you know, I did this air quality study where I measured um, concentrations of acetic and formic acid in um, different um, um, cases and um, locations in the Tate Gallery in, in London. And um, we were interested in saying if paintings are like stored in their frames that they're used for transit, so they're really like um, stuff that's protecting them from, you know, buffeting around during transport. Um, is that bad for them? Well, it turns out that there's a huge amount of like formic and acetic acid that are given off by plywood. And then the paintings kind of sit there and like marinate in this like vinegar mixture, um, which is, you know, somewhat obviously bad. Um, but anyway, so we submitted this paper to um, a, a, a journal uh, and it was sort of very quickly rejected um, because you know, it's not in the scope or whatever. It was an air quality journal. We've sent it to this new journal and we got this like, absolutely. I feel like, I don't know if it's like, 
um, done to like um, chastise reviewers on air. But, you know, this person said, um, we already know all these things. Um, what are you talking about? This is not new scientifically. This isn't this, this isn't that. And so we've written back this kind of scathing rebuttal, I suppose, you know, that said, um, uh, no one has done these specific measurements before. Um, you know, it's important for us to do this to verify, you know, what are the range of these pollutants in different places? Um, you know, the, the idea was that because it had been measured once, we don't need to do it again. And so uh, the, sometimes I think that's a mentality of some of the different research fields, whereas in atmospheric chemistry, you know, you can measure air quality in um, Hamilton, you can measure it in Toronto, you can measure it in wherever, you know, and these are all valid things to measure because we want to know these things, you know, whereas they were in this, this field, which I'm assuming it was a conservation scientist, they said, you know, okay, well, people already know that these things emit things, therefore we're done, you know, let's like wrap a bow on it, this, this research area is now closed for business, you know, um, so that kind of thing has been a bit frustrating, but, um, but I'm pretty good at the rhetorical uh, reviewer response takedown, so I'm not too concerned. Oh, that's fantastic. Always advocate for yourself with that because it's, it's, yeah, it's worth it. it. Yeah, sure. it's their it's loss. But interdisciplinary work is always, I mean, this is just the challenge is that you have to convey information in ways that are um, legible, I suppose, to vastly different communities, you know, and, and the way that you write things and the way that you talk about things has to be super different than if you're talking to an audience just of, you know, of your own peers in your own like microsphere of research and influence, I suppose. But it's good practice for students to learn how to explain things in a way that's um, globally legible, I suppose. Actually a perfect segue into our, our next question. Sure. Um, like what gaps do you feel like the environmental chemistry and chemical biology fields need to further explore when it comes to airborne particular matter or, or um, urban air quality in developing countries and also like just urban communities? What are the gaps do sure. you like, think there are? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a big question. And I think, um, uh, I don't know if I'm the best person to answer it at all. But so when I when I put together my research proposal for, uh, so maybe this is more of a me, a me answer, a very specific personal answer. Mm -hmm. I put together my research proposal for my research group at the University of Alberta um, in 2015. And I was, you know, motivated by the fact that um, the pollutants that are present in a sort of non quote unquote Western slash North American contexts are often very different. So the air quality challenges are often very different. So the sources, the emission types, everything is, is different in different locations. And the bulk of our knowledge, um, you know, until relatively recently about air quality has been, um, you know, air quality in the context of Los Angeles smog or London smog or all the things you learn about in school. Um, you know, but what is it like if your emission sources are from, um, you know, household um, combustion processes like, um, like dung burning for, for fuel or fuel burning indoors um, and where people are exposed indoors? Or what if it's in areas where the fleets haven't been converted? So there's a huge amount of emissions from two-stroke engines and things like this. And so originally I was thinking, you know, my goal would be to kind of get a sense of, you know, or in areas where there's lots of dust, right? And then I moved to Alberta and realized there's also dust there. Um, you know, so I was I was thinking about this and I wanted to kind of answer these different research questions. And it was motivated originally by this idea that, you know, in large cities, um, for example, um, large African cities um, like Lagos, Nigeria, at the time when I was writing this proposal, I remember thinking, you know, this city has like, forget if it's greater than 10 million people and, you know, one or two air quality met, like measurement stations. It's just this vast um, problem with resource um, distribution, I suppose. Um, anyway, so I thought I'll do this kind of chemistry and, you know, and then I, I got really distracted with this road dust stuff on a local scale. Um, and then as I started to think about things a little bit more, I became a little bit 
less comfortable with that research, with that way of thinking about my group's research, because I think it was motivated by this idea that, you know, there's this huge inequity in what we understand and what we know. Um, but I think, you know, it's really important um, that when scientists from, um, you know, from, from Canada, the US or whatever, are working in other areas that, um, that they're engaging with local expertise and that they are, um, like not, I don't really want to say like sign. Uh, no, I do want to say like not not treating it as like this new exciting research place to explore, um, in a kind of colonizing sort of way, a scientific colonization sort of way. Because there's a lot of um, instances where, um, you know, where researchers are sort of I think it's called like parachute researcher. I don't know the the terminology of all this. You know, where people are like oh my God, the air quality in X city is so terrible. I'm going to take my expensive instrumentation and measure it. And then I'm going to publish it in nature or something, you know? And I mean, that's a real poor way of thinking about people in these other places, you know? Um, so I guess what was my actual answer to this question was thinking about, oh, what are the research gaps? Yeah, right. Okay. So I think, you know, um, maybe the research gaps until relatively recently have been, you know, um, you know, atmospheric chemists and, and, and environmental scientists know how to measure stuff and they know how to do stuff and analytical chemists know how to how to determine the concentration of things, right? But I think it's more that that's not the full picture. It's like, you know, in what broader systems are these disparities in pollutant exposure embedded, right? And how can we as environmental scientists think about, you know, like there's a reason why the concentrations of things are higher in certain areas. And we need to be a lot better at, at, at thinking about environmental racism and things like this and engaging in a with experts on those specific topics. So I think the thing is that, you know, as environmental scientists or whatever, you know, we can like measure stuff, um, but that stuff and the way that stuff is, is embedded in, in huge, broader and equitable systems. So I would say that the atmospheric chemistry field has done a bit of a better job of late um, in, you know, making sure that when people are publishing in certain areas that you're publishing with local experts to make sure that the measurements that are being done are useful for the people living in those places. Um, you know, to reduce the sort of cost of the instrumentation to provide, um, you know, guidance in terms of setting things up. But I feel like it's a, a really fraught area, um, you know, and it's one that I, I, I want to think really carefully about how I personally engage in, I think. It's a kind of a long answer. It's a great answer. And uh, just to segue into kind of the future of, of this field of research, uh, what advice would you have for undergraduates and master's students who are perhaps interested in applying to research in your lab or are generally interested in pursuing the field of research in environmental chemistry? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, given my career path, I, just, I don't even know what to say. It's like, I don't really have any, uh, you know, practical suggestions necessarily. I guess, um, you know, one of the things that I would say is, you know, I, I remember coming out of undergrad and being sort of really existentially anxious, um, you know, because in undergrad, you have these four years where, you know, you just show up and you, not to minimize, I mean, it was rough. I mean, I hated my undergrad, but, you know, you show up and you, you know, you do your classes and you, you work on them. And at the end of it, you're kind of adrift, like, oh God, what do I do now? You know? Um, and I would just sort of encourage people to, um, to, try to suppress that anxiety and to think that, you know, the, you know, your degree has taught you how to do things. Now you can kind of spend some time thinking about what you might want to do within reason, I suppose, you know, and, uh, and think about what you actually want to do and then think about how you can get those opportunities, um, I suppose. But, you know, at the same time, I feel like I really, I don't even know if I like answering these questions because I think, you know, a lot of people when they come out of school are really motivated by, you know, they're in student debt and they, 
need to pay off the debt. And this was me, for example, you know, and it didn't really occur to me to have these like times to sit around and ponder, like, you know, what's the meaning of life and what do I want to do or whatever. So it's only a small subset of people who even get to think about how to optimize their career path. So, you know, I went into chemistry because I figured that if I got a bachelor of science, I would be able to get a good job and I would be able to pay off my loans. You know, like it wasn't because I had some deep and abiding desire to be a chemist, you know? So I, I feel like I'm not even really answering your question. I just think that these types of conversations are also quite fraught because this idea this of being free to think about what you want to do is a privilege in and of itself. I completely agree with that. Um, I, I know we asked about like what advice, but everybody also just has completely different experience throughout their lives and every lab and every like career and research has a different like kind of unfolding. So really sure. the advice is just being open-minded to things, I guess. Well, but, I think I'd prefer to give advice to the institution, which is that we need to yeah. increase the accessibility of these opportunities. Most definitely. Outreach to people, you know, who, who don't know about the opportunities and we need to provide people with the kind of skills um, you know, and and things that some people come in with to begin with through no um, particular, um, you know, personal qualities other than, yeah. um, you know, having connections and pre-existing Or, or maybe <laughs> the, we also talked about this in another interview, like in having less emphasis for certain other degrees, like medical degrees and stuff like that, to have research experience in your undergrad, because it's it's like taking away from people who actually want to do that or have a slight interest in it and just can't get an opportunity because their GPA is a point off or they don't have the right connections and stuff like that. It's just not as accessible. No, it's true. Yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing is that, you know, um, if all the paid positions are, are filled, then often it ends up being kind of a volunteer thing. And like, I know personally, I would have had absolutely no way to volunteer in undergrad. I was working at like a restaurant or whatever while I was taking class. And um, you know, so I don't take volunteers in my group for that reason. I think, you know, if students are doing extracurricular work, then they should be paid. I mean, I know the stipends are dismal, but I mean, it's, I just don't, I mean, on a personal level, I think, you know, it needs to be treated as a job, you know, because I, students are yeah. free. So. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, as someone who works full-time in a career that's not this, that's not biology <laughs> related or whatever, I work at a school, it's, it's definitely like waking up every day to go to work and then come back and study for hours on end and then get a, like just bad, bad grades. And then <laughs> hope that yeah. I could eventually get a career in research is like, it's just very discouraging um, yeah. as a student. So it's good. It's good to know that people are working on making it a little um, bit more accessible. Or at least I suppose aware of it. I mean, I know that, you know, if we talk about the undergraduate experience, you know, in a general sense, it's so varied, right? Which is kind of what you just said. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, the students who have the time and the and the space and the lack of external things to really think about, you know, their grades or whatever. And then there's the students who have huge amounts of other things going on, you know, and um, pre-existing barriers against their participation and whatever. And so I think it's super important for universities to, to reach those students too. And to, you know, and to make a place for students who, you know, who don't appear, I mean, to me, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, someone who's really motivated and interested in research. I mean, there's tons of people who are really motivated and interested in research, but that doesn't appear like typically quote unquote, I suppose, because, you know, they're busy, like caretaking or something, you know? So yeah. um, I have feelings about this in short. <laughs> of undergraduates um what opportunities and roles do undergraduates have in at your lab at Manchester university oh sure yeah i mean um for for the for the undergrad end of things i mean as i was mentioning earlier at alberta i started off with with no grad students in the group just because mm -hmm. of the kind of timing of when i started and the, the and how it 
overlapped non-optimally with the student recruitment season, I suppose. Um, so for the first couple of years, I had um, a couple of really excellent undergrads in the group. So Stephanie Schneider, she's now um, just in the process of finishing up her PhD at Toronto, actually. Um, so she started our road dust work. And uh, Sherry Gao, who was a engineering student at um, Alberta, joined and was helping out with that as well, as well as Chelsea Cote, who now works for uh, the RCMP. Anyway, so they joined um, and she works in her their paint analysis lab, um, analyzing paint, as the name suggests, um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, and, you know, they joined my group and, and um, because I was new um, and, you know, inexperienced and everything, you know, we very much kind of worked together in this kind of um, symbiotic collaborative sort of way. You know, we were learning how to use instruments together. We were learning about research questions together and things because I was a completely new professor. So I actually kind of liked it. It was like a gentle on-ramp. Um, you know, it was like, <laughs> I may not feel as though I know very much, but I, I know I know more than a second year university student. Um, you know, not in a um, hierarchical way, but just in a like literal experience way. So, um, you know, so it was, it was nice to be able to guide them through their programs. Um, and so then what's happened as, as my group has grown is that, you know, I have um, for the most part, the undergraduate students in my group will work with graduate students in the group um, on different projects, but I always try to make sure that their projects are kind of linked to what they want to do and what skills they want to gain and, and that it's sort of meaningful. I mean, I'm not, I don't really have a productivity mindset as a researcher. I have more like an exploratory mindset um, and I don't have the attention span to kind of micromanage people. So uh, the idea basically is that when students are in my group, you know, they're kind of exploring things, learning things, um, working with graduate mentors, working with me, and like really depending on the phase that the project is in, if it's at the very beginning, then the research they're doing is probably kind of extremely exploratory. Like, what do we see when we do this? Um, if they're at the end, um, you know, then often it's let's finish up these last experiments or whatever, but they always have a meaningful or I aim to have them have a meaningful experience. Um, when you're looking for students to participate in your lab or um, recruiting undergraduates or graduate students, what do you um, often look for in their CVs or their transcripts? What, what is something that you have to always be have there or not there. Okay. You know, I feel like this is another one of these questions that I'm not going to answer in the way that you want me to answer it, which is that, um, you know, I feel like the deep, dark secret of equity, diversity, and inclusion in a university context is that um, it's the intake of, you can have an inclusive lab as much as you want, um, but I think the process of getting into a lab is sort of inherently exclusionary in that um, there are very few people who have um, organized systems to minimize bias in student recruitment. Um, and I am one of the people who does not have one of these. And so I'm I, fully aware that this is the big um, sort of missing spot in my own group's EDI activities. So what happens usually, um, and this has happened primarily because I'm in a chronic state of overwhelm with respect to work, um, which I can attribute but not excuse through the, the ADHD diagnosis I previously mentioned, um, is that I get a billion emails from students who are interested in um, you know, working in the group. Um, and a lot of those emails are, um, are uh, spam type emails in that, um, you know, it is very clear that they're not directed directly toward me, that they're more like, I'm interested in your research group in a kind of vague way. Um, and I find it very taxing to, to sift through these, um, and to find ones that are actually interested. So there's a lot of like work that professors have to do, um, to, to try and assess things equitably, like from the very beginning. And so I'm constantly getting emails. And I'm like, ah, I don't know what to do with this, you know? And so usually what ends up happening is that, 
you know, there'll be some random reason why I find myself like more able to read emails and assess emails in a semi-objective way on a given day. And the people who email me on those days are the ones who get my best behavior and best responses. So this is not something I'm proud of. And it's something that I'm actually working on with, with the group at the moment, with my group is to actually set up to sort of remove that barrier, like the barrier being like literally me um, and replace it with um, an online form that will allow people to submit in a more organized way um, and answer questions that are, you know, related to, um, you know, why are you working in the group? What sort of experience do you have kind of broadly speaking that might be applicable and that you might be interested in bringing to the group, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I think that it's a real problem, essentially, um, recruitment into, into positions. But in terms of what I'm, I suppose, looking for, um, um, I don't know, I even find it difficult articulating this because I feel like so many different people have so many different things they could bring to a research program. I guess it would be, you know, they're really interested in working in this specific area, you know, um, because uh, grad school, undergrad research is really hard. And if you want to get through this log, you have to have some sort of pre-existing interest. You know, the second thing um, is that because environmental chemistry is so multifaceted, there's no specific skills that are necessary. Like with some of the instrumentation we use, there's no reason why anyone would have ever even heard of it, let alone have experience with it. So I think what I'm interested in is students who are willing to learn and, and who can kind of override that discomfort with knowing nothing about something, um, you know, in a supportive environment, I suppose, to kind of figure stuff out, I guess. So I guess that's my answer. A lot of like um, self-criticism <laughs> implicit in that answer. No, but... I think I think self-criticism <laughs> is a good thing in, in that because I always wonder, I mean, it's it's nerve-wracking sending emails through a club email to profs, like cold emailing professors and you're drafting up a different email for each professor. And I like my like I get I get like sweaty palms when sending these emails I'm like did I say something wrong did I say something wrong in this one email that they're going to read from this club like they oh. don't even know that it's me <laughs> um well, and it's super stressful say, I mean I would say not to worry about that so much I mean maybe there are some professors who are reading things with fine tooth combs and looking for problems I suppose um but I mean, I'm certainly not one of them. So, you know, I mean, I think um, I think students are, you know, with with reason, often very nervous about messaging professors. Um, I think probably the most important thing for them to keep in mind is, you know, because different students have different levels of involvement with professors. I never emailed professors at all. I didn't know any professors. You know, whereas one of my really good friends, um, her parents are one of them is a professor, and they both have PhDs, and so it was all demystified for her. And this is this like inequity issue I was talking about before. Oh, um, yeah. you know, but for those students who you know are maybe listening to this and and don't know any professors, you know, I mean. Uh, just everyone's just a regular person. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard yeah. to to figure it out. But when when you kind of try to look at it more, like less stiff, more just like a conversation, usually with with professors, it goes better. I think they think that like when when people are emailing professors, I think that they think perhaps you know, that every professor is getting a zillion emails on a day-to-day -day basis that are expertly crafted and discussing people's <laughs> qualifications and stuff. That's not the case. Professors get a lot of emails uh, that are, like I said, just sort of like, they're just distributed. Like people have clearly, you know, on, on um, I mean, that's another issue on poor advice um, yeah. in a North American context, you know, are just deciding to send a billion things out. Um, yeah. 
you know, but what is most important, I think, when people are writing to professors or whatever, you know, is to really make it clear that you are an individual person who is individually interested in that professor's research program. And the number of emails that I get that do that are like few and far between. So that's unfortunate. You don't have to stand out by, um, you don't have to stand out by having a 12 GPA or whatever. You want to stand out by, you know, by making it clear that you're interested in talking to them. And I know we're running out of time, but I want to hammer home this point, which is that, you know, you are thinking that professors are interviewing you when you email them. Um, but last time I checked, you know, there's, well, I don't know how many hundreds of professors at McMaster and you have already interviewed them by deciding who you want to email. So you've already rejected tons of professors. So, you know, I, I just think you should think about it that way is that, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's certainly not an equal playing field, but you know, you've already made a choice um, as a result of emailing them. So if you get a rejection or you don't hear back from a professor, don't worry because you know there's lots of professors who didn't even hear you in the first place. Finishing off this interview, I sure. just really wanted to say thank you so much for joining us today and for you know entertaining our questions about sure. your really vast field of research <laughs> over decades throughout your career. Uh, I know some of the questions are more specific and you answered them all just really well. And it was really, really entertaining. Uh, and talking to you has been a really big pleasure and I can't wait to see what the Styler Group will do next. Oh, wonderful. No, thank you. And actually we're not even called the Styler Group anymore, but we haven't updated nope. our website. Now we're called um, to convey the, the breadth of stuff that students are doing. We're called like Particles at Mac and Particles stands for, I think, like the A is art, the R is reaction, the T is, I don't remember. There's, you know, the students came up with this great acronym. So the point, I guess, is to take away the focus on me and to put it more back on, you know, all the students and all the really excellent stuff that they're doing. Um, and in future, I will remember the acronym and, and we will put up our website. So it's amazing. And yeah, and also your Twitter, your Twitter is amazing. The Styler yeah, Group I love, Twitter. I love your Twitter. Yeah, so. I haven't updated it in a year though. I know, but when we're when we were doing uh, research for this oh. this interview, we went through like basically everything. Oh, <laughs> we talked to you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. we fangirled. Fun. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard not to become kind of a huge fan of of profs after this and like stalk their twitters <laughs> afterwards. It's oh, really difficult. Nice. You talk to them for an hour and then you're like, I want to know what they're doing right now. I want to know. <laughs> It's oh, like, no, it's like a specific student that you had over three years ago. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. We need to set up our, we have a Twitter account for McMaster. It's particles at Mac or something like or particle Mac particles or something. Um, and it's essentially dormant. So, you know, I moved and um, as one can imagine, I think I already said this, but moving in the pandemic is not the optimal time to move across the country. So um, a lot of the administrative things like, you know, getting our, 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 you know, our Twitter together, our website have really fallen by the wayside. Um, one of these days we'll have a new one though. Feel free to stalk away. <laughs> we definitely will. Thank you for listening to this episode uh, of MRSA Podcasts and stay tuned for the upcoming interviews over the month of March.